0: Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. A quick note about this week's episode and the episodes we have coming up in the next few weeks. We recorded this a few days early because my husband and true crime co-author Kevin Flynn, basically he has thyroid cancer, he's having surgery on his throat, and we're really worried about where his voice might be next week and week and the week after that. So we're doing some pre-production here. Obviously, it's a difficult time for a variety of reasons. But the reason I wanted to mention this specifically this week is because we're talking about episode three of the case against Adnan Sayed. We do know there are other things going on in the world, such as the Curtis Flowers case in front of the Supreme Court, such as other true crime and legal developments that we typically would cover in real time. But given what's going on with Kevin, we just really wanted to make sure we could get a show out for you. So thank you so much to all of you for sticking with us through good times and bad times as we make this podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting us on Patreon the last few weeks as we are trying to make some extra content for you. We really appreciate it. And we don't really anticipate much interruption to our production schedule. But of course, our thoughts are with Kevin and we're going to do everything we can to ensure his health stays where it should in the next few weeks. And um Thanks so much to everyone for all the good wishes I know you'll be sending our way.
1: For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime podcast review about other podcasts, pop culture, TV, and journalism. And this week, the third chapter in the HBO documentary that's got fans of serial riveted, the case against Idnan Syed. Joining me to talk about that and a whole lot more is my beloved real life husband and true crime co author, former TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin.
1: Hello, Rebecca. Don't I sound full throated and you do. really deep and bassy today? You
0: sound good for now. For
1: <laughs> Such an asshole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and black diamond ski trail adventurer Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura.
2: Hello. Uh, Yeah, I don't want to keep that title because it's not going to happen for another 11 years, but um, it happened once.
0: (laughs) Well, we will talk about that a little more, and then we'll also talk about it at more length in our Patreon Crime Writers on After Show because I I know I want to hear the story about how two firemen abandoned you to die yes, in the much. mountains of New Hampshire. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. But I'm here. So oh, okay.
2: I, I am resourceful, if nothing
1: else. <laughs> also
2: with us is the author you behind- You could have done
1: this podcast with just two people. <laughs> it might have been really bad. Just you and Toby. Just
0: me and Toby? Yeah. Even if we had just stuck to our regular production schedule, yeah. <laughs> it would have been like Toby being like, uh, I don't know, and uh, me being like, ah, and trying <laughs> to fill in those holes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Also with that sounds us good. <laughs> Toby Star is on the rise. He's like yeah. attrition, knocking down my fellow stars <laughs> one by one.
1: <laughs> I'm no longer the last one introduced <laughs>
0: And speaking of our little back of the bob sled, podcaster, uh, <laughs> do- <laughs> the break man,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: along with us is the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, acclaimed writer, and our very own Patreon Book Club captain, Toby Ball. Good morning, Toby.
3: Good morning, Rebecca.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, because of our adjusted production schedule, if you heard the pre-roll of this podcast, you know Kevin is. Um,
1: I'm I'm right now recuperating.
0: You're right now recuperating in real time. Yes. But you haven't had your surgery yet. That's tomorrow. Yeah. And so in order for us to really get the show done, which, (laughs) listen, I am really concerned about you and I love you very much. And we also know we have to get the show out. (laughs) 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 And there's a lot going on emotionally and in the real world. But like, we have to get the show out. So we Just have- think
1: how great the clip show will be. I know. Oh, in memoriam.
0: Oh, stop it. Oh, stop God, it. Kevin. It's dark, Kevin. <laughs> I'd be dark. Um, so we have to get the show done. So we're doing it in the morning. So you're hearing a very different version of the four of us. And Toby, I'm going to start with you. How would you describe morning Toby to our audience?
3: I think the the thing that best describes it is I cannot come up with words for it right now because (laughs) it's the morning still. Oh, this is going to be an amazing podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sit down. This is a preview of things to come from me.
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. You sent me some very smart notes. Laura Bricker, um, how do you feel this morning? As I mentioned in the opening, you almost died yesterday. How'd that go?
2: Um, Almost Dying? Um, There was a lot of F-bombs that occurred (laughs) in my Almost Dying episode. Do you want to hear the whole experience of how I almost died? I I don't want to hear the...
0: Give us just the, uh, the synopsis, and then we'll get into it more in our after show. I was like...
2: I don't want to say guilted, perhaps lured into going down my first black diamond trail. You know, I am not a particularly adventurous skier and I don't like heights. So it kind of went like, fuck this, fuck this, oh, fuck this, oh, fuck, fuck. All right, I'm just going to go straight and get down. Um, so so then I didn't sleep well last night either, but um, I have had three cups of coffee. So I'm ready to go now because, you know, it's invigorating to still be alive, Rebecca.
0: Yes. And we should say for our listeners who don't ski, there are varying degrees of difficulty. When you get to the top of a ski area, you like ride the lift to the top, and you can make a choice. You can go down the green circle, which is where I like do my very best work on the green circles. Man, I snowboard, I don't ski, but like as I've gotten older, I have definitely settled in to the green circles. Then there are the blue squares, which is intermediate, which is depending on the mountain, sometimes pretty easy and sometimes a little little tricky parts. Then there's Black Diamond, which is scary. And then there's Double and Triple Black Diamond, which is, oh, fuck, 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 scary. Uh, But, Laura, Black Diamond, I know, in in northern New Hampshire where you're skiing is is quite a lot. And so we're all very proud of you for surviving. (laughs) Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. And we will talk about the two firemen (laughs) who left you to die in our after show for all Patreon fans to listen to.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's okay. I got them back. I woke them up this morning at 7 (laughs) a.m.
0: I should also mention we have a really special treat in our Patreon after show, which, yes, fans have questions. Sometimes is dropping before the show because we want to you know get it out there as soon as we can. We are going to hear from legal Siri Colin Miller on some of the holes he found in the Court of Appeals of Maryland's ruling against Adnan Syed last week, he's he's found some problems with it that may be the basis of some legal challenges. And he's going to detail those for us. And he's also just going to um, tell us more about his thoughts about the documentary, too, in our after show. So that's going to be really fun. Legal Siri. Hashtag Legal Siri. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So moving on. This week, we're taking a look at the case against Adnan Syed, part three, Justice is Arbitrary. This episode breaks down the prosecution of Adnan Syed 20 years ago for Heyman Lee's murder and introduces some of the cracks in the foundation of the state's case.
1: During the time of this digging, we received a phone call and I didn't even get a chance to talk to him. He told him uh, that uh, I was busy. If somebody
2: were in Lincoln Park and received two calls, those calls would indicate the cell site
0: for Lincoln Park. Correct. That was the state's
3: case. They said that there were two calls that pinged Lincoln Park Tower that evening, and none was there.
0: Now, we are going to be discussing extensive spoilers for part three of The Case Against Anand Syed, this HBO documentary. So if you just want our letter grade review on this episode of the documentary, check out the show notes. We will put a time code there, which will tell you where to tune in and listen just to hear if we're going to give it an A or a C or a D or whatever letter grades we choose. Now, I do want to follow up on something um, that came up on our Patreon after show last week that we did not include in the podcast, even though I meant to. And frankly, we just didn't have time. Rabia talked really interestingly, I think, and in a way that I really was happy to hear her talk about, the fact that this documentary is using crime scene photos of Heyman Lee's body. Rabia expressed some discomfort with that. I'm just curious to know, panel, how you feel about it. Kevin, how do you feel about seeing those photos in this? I was a little surprised.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, of one uh, book that we did where I had very similar photos. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. A, a woman on her side like that mm. could see, you know, the body's exposed hip. I guess it
3: would have been fine without it.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Toby? Do you agree with Kevin? Uh, yeah,
3: I think so for the most part. I mean, I I think the reason for having it is to, you know, kind of bring home the tragedy of what happened because I, I do think that that was one of the criticisms of of cereal is that that hay got sort of lost in the you know is it non-innocent or guilty thing so i i would assume that the idea is by showing those photos like it's like yeah this girl was murdered but for me personally i I don't know really what it adds yeah you know i I don't know how her family feels about it but if she was a member of my family i think i'd prefer not to have pictures like that out so
0: right So here's where I am on it. I agree that, like, those close-ups of those images, probably not necessary. And I'm sure that, you know, we'll get some pushback here. Like, how is this different than the diary, right? Right. Well, the diary is written. It's not the same as looking at photos of a body, obviously, and I think it's a grayer area. I have mixed feelings only because it is very traditional true crime to show crime scene photos. I mean, this has—we've um, seen crime scene photos in a million true crime things that came out, you know, in years past, and and we don't really think a whole lot about it. So, yeah, I agree with you guys. I don't think it's a hundred percent necessary unless, for instance, they're going to use the photos to make an evidentiary case. I know that they talked like the about liquidity yeah. briefly. Yeah. If the photos come into play that way and they say it is necessary to show these to show you this or show you a rendering of the photo to show you this, that would make more sense to me. But in the way they've been used so far sort of as B-roll, I agree. It sort of left a weird taste in my mouth. Laura, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that
2: using them to sort of set the scene of where she was in the woods, you know, because it is sort of, you know, for me trying to figure out how she was out there and not found for the period of time that she was found, it helps you know, kind of illustrate that by showing where she was concealed. But at the same time, the photos that got closer, I don't necessarily think that those were necessary to advance the story. Because, I mean, it's kind of hard. You have to balance the fact that you're telling the story, you're shining light on the investigation, and also, uh, you know, her family and relatives are going to be seeing this, potentially seeing the show as well.
0: Right. All right, well let's get right into episode three then. The episode does start with one of the cliffhangers episode two left us with, which is that Jay Wilde's ex-girlfriend and victim of domestic violence at his hands, uh, Nikisha, calls Jay.
3: Hello? Yeah, I'm here, I'm
0: listening. We don't hear Jay's side of the conversation, um, and I'm guessing there are reasons for that, legal reasons. <laughs> um it doesn't sound
1: like they were ready to record it. Right. She's just on her phone.
0: Right. But uh, there also might be like a, a consent. party consent. Yeah, Who knows? in Maryland. Yeah. Uh, but the gist that we get, because she tells us, is that he tells Nakisha on that call that he lied about what he knew about the murder to get out of some big weed charges.
3: He said he got caught with a whole bunch of weed and um, it was so much weed they were trying to pin it on him so basically he ratted the man and gave him a bigger story to to get um, him locked up and he basically gave them what they wanted to know so he could get off. He was saying it so fast in slang but
0: Knowing what we know about Jay, I guess it's a question as to whether or not how much of a grain of salt we should take that with. But Kevin, how do you feel about that reveal? Is it satisfying for the cliffhanger or did it leave you hanging? What do you think about that?
1: No, I thought it was a, a good resolution to finding out that question. And it does give an explanation for why would Jay make up a story. It doesn't prove that Jay made up a story, but it certainly puts together a lot of circumstantial evidence to show that. And circumstantial evidence, of course, is still evidence. It's not, you know, not evidence. And we call it circumstantial to say that it's not really it is evidence. And when you put all this circumstantial evidence together, you can come up with, again, your decision based on that. So but nonetheless, they're piling on quite a bit here to explain what serial did not. It gives Jay a reason to have Fibbed,
2: yeah, I, I agree because uh, I think that was always one of the things that I got hung up on is like, well, why would he lie? And I think you know, along the way, I've always sort of had this theory like somebody had information on him, or there was something somebody was holding over him, like there had to be something behind this for him to go along with this story. So I think that seems pretty plausible given what we know about Jay, um, that they did have something, and this is how he got out of that coming against him. So, but at the same time. Jay's pretty much just full of shit all the time. Right. So who really knows? But I mean it is if that's not it, there is something else, some other missing piece as to why Jay was involved the way that he was. Right. Aside from just being a dick.
0: Toby, do you think it would be frustrating to be Rabia or Anan and have these witnesses saying, you know, over and over and over again, including Jay, just you know, through Nikisha, things that just don't at all line up with the things that were used to convict him.
3: Yes. I had, sort I guess, a stronger reaction to the whole Jay thing, mm. which was, has he ever, like, come out and said that he he was lying about it? Yeah. I mean, I, in the Intercept interview. Well, he says he oh, told yeah.
0: but, the, but the real story was different, right? Right. Yeah. right, Yes, but he did say that in the Intercept interview, yeah. yeah.
3: I mean, years later, yeah.
1: and not part of the legal record, but the, Toby, yeah, we do know that.
3: You know, I, I thought that was a more stunning development than, say, the end of the uh, the Robert Durst thing where he's like burping and saying, did I kill her? Yes. Or whatever <laughs> it was, especially if he didn't realize that this was being taped, like that his ex-girlfriend was on camera. And I don't really see what he has to gain from telling a lie like that. So to me, I was just like, "That that seems fairly compelling. So there was that. And then the other part of it I think was you know when they're talking to Jen and uh, and her friend who was going to uh, UMBC Christy. Is, yep, Christy. It's this idea that they're like, oh, I don't know what day it was. You know, mm-hmm. they I wasn't sure. I knew all this stuff happened on the same day. I just wasn't sure what day it was. So yep. the cops said it was this day. So I said, yeah, th- that day. Yep. It's like, well, you know, that's that's actually the absolutely the entire case. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What was interesting is seeing their two reactions to kind of that realization. Uh, Which was Christy was like, you could see that that sort of sinking feeling. And she says, because I think he's guilty. And to me, that just seems like I feel as though sort of out of self-defense, you probably have to feel that way once you realize that you sort of made this mistake that may have put him in jail for the rest of his life. And then Jen is just like, I wish I'd never been a part of this. I wish I hadn't talked to you. So it seemed to me that the import of that was like pretty clear to them. Yep, but I thought there were parts of this that were very damning to the case against Anand. But but it was it was pretty wild.
1: Well, it's hard to introduce Jay's new comments, you know, into court because a lawyer would just say, "You didn't hear Jay say that."
3: Right,
0: it's what she says. Heranikishan he right. say that. Right.
1: right, And and you know, I also think, and again, maybe we're, I'm I'm jumping ahead towards the end of the episode, but when they present the visual of the calendar, right, and they. Mark that Wednesday, the 13th, in blue. Yes. I thought that was like for the perception of the audience that just to visually learn that and to, and to okay, I understand that, but to see it. Right. And you're like, oh, okay. And they, they cut back and forth to the, you know, 2000s. So how did you know it was the 13th? Well, you guys, cops, you guys told me that. Right. And then you see the 13th, you couldn't have been with Christy because she was in
0: school. Right. That night. And she couldn't have been at a conference that day because she was in school that day. She She could not have missed a day of school. So let's just jump there. It happens at the end of the episode, but it does tie up the cliffhanger from episode two. There is a scene, uh, they do talk to Christy and they confront her with. The evidence that she could not have been at the conference where she always remembers. It's very plausible that, you know, you do tie events to other things that happened on the same day, Mm -hmm. right? You just do. Mm -hmm. The Judge Judy thing, super plausible. The conference thing, super plausible. But she could not have been at the conference on that day because she had to have been in class that day because it was winter term. They only have like six classes. And if you miss one, you don't pass. And she got a B plus in that class. So she knows it. She knows it. And you see her know it. And then there is that scene where we see Christy and Jen sitting together, drinking their sugary drinks, and their story is challenged.
3: I'm telling you that in my mind, my memory, that's what happened. <laughs> it's just one of those things that's like you're involved in that you'll never know the truth, and that's hard to, I think, come to grips with, that you're part of something that you really never know the truth about.
0: don't matter to me. I used to care, but now. She still seems sure, but Christy seems devastated to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you could see it on her face that she was like, oh, shit. Uh, this isn't how I remember. Like, it, you could see kind of like, I don't want to say the wheels turning, but you could definitely see the realization that the story didn't happen on the day that she thought it did. Um, but, you know, Jen, I was just like, whoa, she is like losing her shit.
1: For real, I'm ready to change my name to get out of this shit, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want any
0: fucking thing to do with it, period. Flat out. I wish I never would have talked to y'all in the first place.
2: Jen, Jen's kind of a tough character. Yeah. Um, and that scene particularly, I'm like, I don't think I'd want to tangle with Jen. I'm surprised that they get her to talk as much as they did. And I'm curious what happened after that scene. I want to see what we see next with Jen, if, if that is literally the last that we see of her. Because she's just like, fuck you all. I'm not getting involved in this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to punch you out. But I, I think just the amount of work that went into getting those class schedules from that time period, which probably, I mean, I'm sure colleges have records, but that's like 20 years ago. Yep. I mean, that's, you know, not stuff, you know, and, and I know a lot of places as things have gone digital have gotten rid of their paper records. So why was this never done before? I guess. Yeah. Any other out, you know... Uh- so well, it, undisclosed it was, uh, did it. To be fair, there's a yeah. lot of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you listen, undisclosed yeah, 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 is not yeah. a surprise. No, they did. To but you, I but, mean, yeah. you know what I mean. In in like season one of Serial and stuff, we didn't hear, hear that type of work being done. So, really interesting. I, you know, it, it makes me think like if this gets to trial again, there's so many. You polls? know, inconsistencies <laughs> yeah. In, with. Yeah. Well, with different witnesses, it's like who who's even going to be credible that's going to testify that was part of the first trial
0: at this point. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that if it, this ruling hadn't come down and if the state had decided to go forward with a new trial, it would have been a completely different trial because. Mm-hmm. All of the evidence they presented in in Adnan's original trials is is out. I mean, it's basically all contestable or impeached. The witnesses have all been impeached. Like, I can't even imagine what the theory of a new trial would have been, which is sort of secretly why I wanted it to happen, even because I just Uh was curious to know, like, what are they going to come up with now? I mean, I really do think that Christy in particular, I have said it for a long time. The flaw of Serial, especially in retrospect, is basing their podcast on two premises. One is J or Adnan, binary choice, bad premise. The second one is, you know, making so much of the podcast about the reliability of memory. Because Christy has very good reason to be sure of her memory but it's also wrong. And we see her watch her own interview with the cops when she says the cops told her. Mm-hmm. It's it's insane. All right. Well, let's go back to the Jay stuff, because that is like sort of the first half of this episode. Detective Massey tells us that Jay is, quote, by no means an informant, that the choice for people like Jay is twofold. You're either a witness or you're a defendant, but he will not characterize him as an informant. Laura, yeah. former defense investigator, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was
2: interesting because he said something. I wrote this down. With the information he had, he's sitting right on the fence. So he's basically saying, you know, he could have gone either way. And that does happen a lot, I think, in, you know, criminal cases because you're going out and you're interviewing, you know, people that have been, you know, in a lot of cases, friendly with people that are being arrested. And so, you know, judging people's credibility, it's like, okay, who actually is credible here? And sometimes it's like, nobody's credible. So who's the most credible or the least credible? Uh, You know, and it's kind of a a balancing act as you're, you know, looking at cases and putting cases together. But I mean, I think Jay is so just ridiculously non-credible. I, you know, I'm like, what the, but At the same time, we hear that former prosecutor saying, you know, we just
0: trying to clear our desks, uh, you know, at this point. So you can see how he was used. But crazy. We also hear that former prosecutor. His name is Ivan Bates, a Baltimore City prosecutor. And he says. Nice tie, by the way. Yes. I
1: like this orange tie.
0: He says that in his experience working with Kevin Urich, the guy doesn't care very much about details. He says that. Yeah, that's yeah. an
1: interesting thing, and you know, and that is, is a pretty big professional flaw: is to not look at details. You, you know,
0: <laughs> when you're putting people away for life or yeah. them to death God. penalty. But,
1: but look at Susan Simpson, and oh. uh, you know, she had a giant stack, thousands of papers, and her eagle eye picked up the thing about the fax coverage.
2: in like a couple of minutes. I've been an associate attorney for a long time, so I have my methods of handling new cases and new case files. And what I always do is when I get a new case, I go through it and I assemble all the communications in order because the file is always a mess. And you have to figure out who said what when. When did the cops request this? When did AT&T respond? And I'm like, okay, let's see what this instruction sheet actually says. How to read subscriber activity reports. All calls are recorded in Eastern Standard Time. Good to know. And it also says outgoing calls only are reliable for location status. Any incoming calls will not be considered reliable information for location.
1: That is a super small detail, which is very easily missed and obviously was. To be on the other end of that spectrum where, again, you're just trying to crank this out as efficiently as you can, maybe in part because you think you got a really strong case. The cops aren't going to lead you wrong. And this all this stuff points in this one direction. So let's go there. It could be also more than just that you're you're a little sloppy. Uh, it can also be, like again, like Susan pointed out, when you're a prosecutor, you're supposed to serve justice. You're not supposed to just be there to see everybody who comes in gets convicted. Right. And a lot of times prosecutors don't see their job that way.
0: One interesting detail, we do get some close-up photographs of Christina Gutierrez, who we've only seen in the distance before in courtroom shots. She
1: looks scary. Yeah.
0: She looks, I think, pretty much exactly <laughs> as I expected she would look. She looks... Dishaber. Like she like she's and having that, a tough time, yeah, right? Yeah. And then we get another meaty part of the episode, Asia McLean. Asia talks about her journey to becoming a key witness in Anand Syed's post conviction case. First, I just want to talk about this. I think it's nutty only because I just can't relate to it. It's not actually nutty, but it's particular. Her habit of taking notes on everything that happens and then keeping those notes forever. She still has high school stuff, diaries, notes, calendars, but she also has notes of a call with Kevin Yurick that happened like a decade ago and she shows them to us. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote down something Yurick said to me directly. If I had any doubt that Anand didn't kill Hay, it would be my moral obligation to see that he didn't serve any time. Toby, are you this organized in your life? you keep these kinds of notes?
3: <laughs> Weightlifting with squishy and sneaky peed and, Squee. You know, Beers over it. Uh, Skis. Um, yeah. No, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess there are, you know, clearly there are people who do. I don't understand why you would, but. You think that someday this is going to be important.
0: Right. Or you think you're the kind of person who thinks that everything that they do is important and they want to just keep track of everything. I mean, that is a personality trait. Some people just, you know, want to think their own life is worth documenting. Now there's anything wrong with that. That's just a personality that Asia seems to have, which is interesting. And she talks, I think, very well about why... That um, makes for
1: an unconventional witness on this
0: Right. But then... Uh, In 2012, we hear a court proceeding where Asia's affidavit, the one that Rabia asked her to write and got notarized, comes up against Prosecutor Kevin Urich's take in court. A young lady named Asia called me. And um, what did she say? She was concerned because she was being asked questions about an affidavit she'd written back at the time of the trial. She told me that she'd only written it because she was getting pressure from the family. And she basically wrote it to please them and get them off her back. Surprise, surprise. Turns out that this was also a lie, according to everyone. Lara, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I am not surprised. I mean, it does induce some rage because it's just like, at some point, you know, enough is enough and somebody needs to call this guy out on his bullshit. But what the fuck? I mean, like, how can you just lie to that level and have like, just get away with it without anybody. I mean, I guess you can, because at one point somebody said, yeah, you know, you, you need to understand the prosecutors are the most, you know, powerful people in the court. I'm like, yeah, clearly. And, you know, they're not censored um, or fact-checked at any point. So, you know, I'm not surprised. It's just ridiculous, though.
0: So, Kevin, Asia characterizes Thiru's take on her in the present day, in the PCR proceedings, that, she you know, she's being demonized. You know, it was pretty odd, I think, considering that the state, A, lied to her the first time around, lied Mm -hmm. about her affidavit the second time around, Mm -hmm. and then never reached out to her in the modern day at all, even though they knew she was going to be potentially a witness in the case.
1: Yeah, you know, again, you're certainly left with the impression either that the institution is dirty Mm. or it is fatally flawed.
2: Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series.
0: So back to the case against Adnan Syed, part three. There is a really series of fun scenes in this episode about Serial coming out and what it was like for all of the kids who went to school with uh, Hay and Adnan, who are now adults, to listen to the podcast, how it sort of brought the case back to them. It's just it's cut really nicely, that scene. But it turns out Woodlawn kids aren't the only ones listening. So is one. Susan Simpson. I was on Reddit and somebody posted a blog by this attorney, Susan Simpson, and I started reading it. And
3: she had written, I don't know like 35, 40 pages about Jay's police statements.
2: And I just emailed her and I said, you're analyzing this stuff in a way that nobody ever has. I have all the files and I'd love to give it all to you. I got the case file from Rabia. She handed it over to me. I told her not to. I'm like, this is stupid, you don't know
0: me. This is very early on, and she gave it to me anyway. She's like, Okay, well, you know, go find stuff in there. So, first, I just want to talk about something practical the amount of hours and work and time, even pre undisclosed, that Susan Simpson and legal Siri Colin Miller, too did on this case like put in investigative hours legal research uh you know reaching out blogging laura you are a professional investigator and an amateur nancy drew can you relate to this at all or are you just completely amazed like i am at just the amount of the their lives that these professional people with day jobs put into working on this case
2: To do that on the side in addition to your day job is absolutely um, amazing. You know, I did it for a day job for a number of years. And even then it was exhausting because you're always afraid you're going to miss something and you're highlighting and making notes and going over things and making sure you're reading everything very carefully. So, you know, to do that at the end of your regular job and with that level of detail and dedication, uh, you know, that takes a special type of person. It does (laughs) to be able to be able to stick that out. You know, it's like uh, I was getting paid to do it. They're not. Um, So, you know,
0: fight, fight the power. Um, Yeah. Well, I do know Susan. Uh, Obviously, I work with her and I've met her on a number of occasions and she is a really interesting and special type of person. She's one of the most intense people I know. Mm -hmm. And she's exactly who you want digging into stuff on your behalf. She's exactly who you want because she is like a junkyard dog who does not let go when she gets a little (laughs) bite of something meaty. Um, And in this case, um, you know, using the cell tower evidence we heard in serial, Susan is armed with a series of helpful pictures, blob maps. She walks us through how a series of misinterpretations of the data and even typos Mm. of numbers were used to help Jay craft his version of the day that Adnan allegedly murdered Hay. Now, Serial tried to cover this in that episode where they explained the technology and everything. They didn't have this information at the time. Kevin, were you able to follow along with what Susan was saying in this part of the episode? Because it was complicated.
1: It was, but I'm also someone who um, has uh, followed Undisclosed and followed the PCR. And this was evidence that was... Uh, submitted. So it wasn't new to me. But like we said, if you've read a book and then you go to see the movie, you don't complain about that, The you know, the plot line is the same and you know certain things. But I think it was great to visually see it uh, again. And I think it's really important that the greater public, you know, the HBO viewers who may not have done anything after listening to Serial to see that and really have that cause a lot of doubt in the way that that story was put together, not only from the technical side, or the the way that the uh, the cell phone expert said Abe by the, W. We'll Abe, just call him because we're yeah. on the with his name's is a Abe and name he's like say. a young, hot looking guy. I Keep had been no tenured. idea he yeah. was so handsome. I no just idea. picture this old guy with Me bald head, and <laughs> liver spots. Um, <laughs> but you had him. You also had right. You also had the detectives. They played back how they had been involved in bad arrests that were overturned because of, I I don't know if you technically call it misconduct or whatever, but you you certainly lay out the case that how could this possibly have gone wrong when they have all these pings and they're able to string all this stuff together between the typos and them having to adjust the, the schedule to where they think the phone was to the unreliability of the incoming calls You know, again, that is the crux of why we believe the state's case is flawed as well as the levity of it.
0: Toby, were you able to follow along with what Susan was saying here? Because she was basically making the case that everything that Jay said, the confession that was elicited and what we know, they say it was their first interview with him. But we know it was their you know, fifth or sixth interview with him that they used this data, which was faulty, which is how Susan can prove they use the data to make the narrative. Do you a buy that? And were you able to follow along as she was laying out this case for us?
3: Uh, it was certainly easy to follow, I thought. Yeah, I mostly buy it. I mean, it's it's certainly, like, at worst, it calls a lot of his testimony into question. And, uh, you know, at best, it, it shows that it's pretty carefully fabricated. You know, you, you make a story to fit the evidence. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was very effective. You know, I, I think I followed this stuff a little bit less than than you guys have. So I didn't have quite the same uh, background in it. I, I didn't find it hard to follow at all. You know, I thought uh, Susan laid it out well. It was well-edited.
0: You know, Laura, one of the things that, you know, the details of all the cell stuff that really strikes me, uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, but happens at the end of the episode, Christie's being involved in this case at all is because of this faulty map drawn by police. These incoming calls, they had to get Jay to make up a reason why he'd be somewhere on that map that he probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. thing geographically that's closest to that spot is Christie's house, So that is how, ultimately, plausibly... Christy ends up being drawn into this at all. The whole reason, this whole idea that like it's planted in her mind that it must have been that on that day was because Jay needed a reason to be at her house that day because yeah. the police typed the numbers of these cell tower sites wrong and they drew a faulty map. Clearly, at some point, that whole group had hung out together and done their,
2: you know, pot smoking, hanging around, you know, little adventure, but it wasn't that day. So, it, you know, it, it's it's, it, you know, interesting that whole, you know, how memory and witness memory plays into. Things. It's like the, the power of suggestion is strong. And it's like, oh, it must have been that day. Because, you know, I know at some point there was Jay and that weird kid here. And, oh, that must have been it. So just amazing when you look at the timelines now and the additional investigation that has been done um, to look back at how pliable some of these witnesses were in terms of going along with what was suggested to them. But, I mean, I don't know. I think she was there just so we could guess what her real name was all these years (laughs) until now, quite honestly. (laughs) Kathy, not Kathy. Um, You know, so I don't know. I think that added a lot to the original Serial, you know, getting to say that over and over again.
0: I'm really glad that this documentary just got her on record in a way that Serial, I mean, Serial had her, but they didn't use her real name. And I think that this documentary, just how much further they were able to get with some of these same people is just really impressive to me, because you would imagine that someone like Christy might be less interested in participating in a project after what happened with Serial. Because as Asia says, when she was interviewed, when all the people who were interviewed, they had no idea that it was going to be listened to by millions of people. They thought it might be like some little radio story or some newspaper article. They didn't know. Now they know. And they still were able to get Christy and Jen to do it. I think that's really impressive journalism because yeah. it's not easy to cultivate those sources and to make them feel good about it. Um, well, there is a scene that's famous for, um, from Undisclosed. Susan Simpson in Undisclosed, uh, in an early episode, talked about how you can hear the police when Jay starts to go off track in his taped interview doing this. And what she claims that they are doing is tapping at the map or tapping at a statement the and table. reminding yeah. him what to say. Kevin, do you hear that in the tape we actually hear in the documentary?
1: Yes. I've always wanted to hear the tape. I think I've heard the tap, tap, tap before. But they uh, they synced it with their reenactment. Yeah, it, it Certainly the suggestion is very powerful when you see it. Right. Uh, could it be something else? I mean, could it be somebody tapping their foot on the, the leg of the table kind of nervously? I guess it could be. But I, I think it is more likely what they put out that it, it was somebody – Tapping on the table, pointing at something.
2: Whenever he forgets the script, forgets what he's supposed to be doing, they're like, you know.
0: What happens then? I believe. Can you bear with me for a minute? Oh, right. mm-hmm. um, OK. We left there.
1: I took him back to school and I went back to my friend Jen's house and waited for him to call.
0: All right. Well, a couple of details. First of all, Ednan does remember going to Christie's apartment. Doesn't think doesn't think it was on that day. Um, Susan talks about how the state's case was cell calls that uh, you know it's all based on those incoming calls, which are the unreliable ones. And Abe Weronowicz, Abe W, the very handsome cell expert who testified at trial, we find out that he reaches out to Urich because he never saw the fax cover sheet. And clearly, whatever answer he gets there is unsatisfying because he does agree to talk to Susan and ultimately recants his expert testimony. Laura, what do you think of this idea that, like, the key witness that provided the key expert testimony then later recanted that testimony? And yet this was the issue that at the new in the new ruling, you know, because of a technicality cannot be held up to reinstate Anand's right to a new trial. That, the technicality part, that's just, ah that's awful. But the fact that this guy
2: actually came forward willingly and was tearful, I mean, it kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit, that somebody that was, a, you know, a prosecution witness the first time around, very, you know, big part of the case, actually did the right thing. And, and the fact that he did the right thing and then it's still not able to help the case is absolutely infuriating. And it's like, you know why... Certain, you know, pieces of the justice system are there to ensure things are fair and that protocols and, and laws are followed. But in something like this, you're like, oh, are you? Ugh? You know, it's just it's, it's maddening that. Um, even though you know this is the truth, it cannot be used. I love
0: all of the squeaking door sound effects. I'm we got sorry, that was bag. Fireman Ken. He literally just walked in the middle of this, so yeah, cool. uh, sorry about that. It adds some atmosphere. <laughs> yeah, no sweat. <laughs> it's, like, it's like we're recording our podcast in a fun haunted house, as we discussed. You are. I'll mute it when he comes back in, so I'll mute myself now. <laughs> no worries, Laura Brooker. Everyone likes to hear Fireman Ken cameos. No shame there. Yes, Yeah. Um, Well, I do want to talk to what I think of as the heart of this episode, something that we have not uh, really seen or heard, especially in serial. Those who follow that podcast, Um, the PCR hearing happens in real time as they're filming this documentary. And there is an incredibly moving scene where Anand's family and loved ones are standing outside on the sidewalk, just waiting for that glimpse of him as he walks by. And his mother, who has become, I really think, like the heroine of this whole thing is just standing there watching her son, you know, dozens of feet away in handcuffs. And there's just so much joy in that, even though it's so, so sad, especially knowing what we know now. Kevin, what did you think of that that part of the documentary?
1: I agree. I thought it was a, a nice scene. And also, I, I mean, it was made possible by law enforcement that they, you know, somebody on the inside said, you know, you look to them on the right. We're going to give you a minute. It's a nice reminder that even though folks are incarcerated, that it's recognized that they are still human. Mm. And, you know, nine out of 10 other defendants, I don't know if they would have necessarily if they would have gotten that little bit. But it was a very small gesture that I think went a long way.
0: I think so, too. And I think that after the PCR hearing, another really moving scene is we see the family go home and Adnan's dad we see on camera for the first time. And... Adnan's brother tells his dad about how Abe apologized to the family for his earlier testimony.
3: Do you remember the old cell phone expert? He wrote an affidavit saying that he doesn't stand by his testimony. We were all going out for dinner and they invited him, so Robbie was telling us, you know, don't talk about the case, he doesn't like to talk about it. I introduced myself, I said, hi, you you know, I'm I'm Adnan's brother and I introduced to mom. And then he said, I'm sorry. It's because of me that your brother is in jail. He
2: had tears. Yeah, he had
3: tears in his he eyes. Start crying. And I said, no, don't you ever think like that. It's not your fault. And it m- broke my heart because it makes me wonder how many more victims are in this trial.
2: I just love his little dad. I want to go give him a hug. Um, oh, I think that that's the thing that this uh, HBO documentary has done effectively that I didn't have quite the same sense of in serial is really – allowing us this window into Adnan's immediate family in a different way that we didn't have before. And I mean, that scene on the, the street when he was coming out of court, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I did tear up a little bit during that part. I was like, oh. And then his dad, who has, you know, avoided the court proceedings and talks about why he did that. And, and then, you know, just to see how the other family members you know, are, are just looking out for him and trying to keep him included. And uh, it just it was kind of heartbreaking.
0: Now, Toby, another aspect of this case that I don't think we saw uh, or heard much about in serial um, is, you know, Adnan wins at that round of the PCR. His family is celebrating. There's a lot of joy. Of course, Heyman Lee's family is not happy. And then there's some really interesting stuff in this episode about, the kind of lack of opportunity and marginalization of Koreans in Baltimore, the Korean community in Baltimore, other crimes where justice uh, wasn't done for victims of murders. And we also see some of that coverage in the Korean language newspapers of this case and how it was covered differently in that side of the community. What did you think of, of that section of the documentary, Toby?
3: I think it's an interesting thing. And another thing that Cyril didn't touch on at all is that you've got these two communities rallying around the people they have involved in this case and that the Muslim community, like people were putting up their houses to help not get bail. And, you know, there's this widespread support. But then there was also the Korean community, which, you know, I think clearly feels a little besieged. As you were saying, economic opportunities aren't there. It seems as though when Koreans are victims that the justice system isn't sort of fully invested in investigating. That was an interesting piece of it, which I hadn't heard anything about in the past. And to an extent, you know, I think it's important context. You know, I don't know if a guy like Jurek like feels any pressure from that or whatever, but you would think that one of, maybe it's not a huge pressure, but one of the pressures is we've got to, you know, in order to kind of show that we're not like completely ignoring crimes where with Korean victims, so we have to kind of get on this. So it, it was, it was good. It was good. I'm glad. I'm glad they put that in. I had not run into that anywhere else before.
0: I was also really moved by the tape of Inan's mom talking about Haman hey Lee right. and how yep. she felt so much for Hay's mom. She lost the child. You know, for me, I can go and hug my son.
1: She won't be able
0: to feel her daughter anymore. She's gone forever. Something that Toby alluded to a second ago was, you know, the the name of this episode, Justice is Arbitrary. A couple of things happen in Anand's case that are stunning, really. First off, a mistake on his charging document gets him denied the opportunity for bail initially which sets him back. Then we see and hear Adnan's ethnicity being used against him at the bail hearing. So egregiously and gross.
2: Your honor, the fact that the defendant has strong com- support from the community, that is what makes him unique in this case. He has the resources of this entire community here. Our investigation reveals that the defendant has an uncle in Pakistan, and he has indicated that he can make people disappear.
3: That his ethnicity was brought up, uh, I think that was a big shock, and that the community was implicated, that they would help him escape was
0: like. The defendant is a member of the Muslim community. The prosecutor was even racist against what she called a, quote, disorganized Pakistani embassy in New York that apparently was just handing out visas willy nilly to murderers Uh. who wanted to go back to their country. Laura, what were your thoughts on that?
2: Uh, Yeah, Um, it it was it was kind of, you know, to watch it. It was just like it's awful. But I was glad that it was included because I feel like Serial sort of was like, well, you know, I'm not sure if this was an issue and it was kind of not addressed to to the same degree during the original serial coverage, so you know I think this was a big part of the case, and I think that this sort of undercurrent of racism here was definitely at play, and and here it was called out, um, but it's still hard to watch because it, it you know the, the part where they're like well he's got the uncle who makes people disappear and you know it's it's just fear mongering really, so it was it was difficult to watch, but I'm glad that they did include this.
1: Yeah. If Adnan had been an African-American and if you substitute Nigeria for Pakistan and said all the same things, I mean, they would have been screaming in that courtroom. And that I can't imagine that a prosecutor would not be sanctioned For just overt racism like that. I don't
0: think prosecutors are sanctioned in that part of the (laughs) country. I
1: I just, yeah, I cannot believe that that would, that it wouldn't be called out or that an African-American judge would let that stand. Yeah. It just, it just felt like it was, not only was it a cheap shot, but it was just so overtly racist. Yeah. If nobody from the community is there supporting him, that's a knock against him. Correct. Everybody from the community is there supporting him. They use that as a knock against him. Exactly.
0: And that's what Chris Floor points out, his original lawyer, is that the whole thing around bail is you're supposed to demonstrate not a flight risk, and you're supposed to demonstrate that you have ties to the community. And here you have people in his community offering up their homes. Yeah. What is a bigger tie than that, than being beholden? To all of these people who are going to mortgage their home so that you can just be free while your defense is being prepared, it's... well people
1: facing murder charges very rarely get bail anyway, but he was a juvenile he was a juvenile. it couldn't be a capital case like it said on on his paperwork, which you know even when that was pointed out and they had the rehearing, it was still you know it's still what it was, but it just like certainly shows a bit of the institutional racism. In that jurisdiction. Yeah. If it's employed by the police and it's also employed by the district attorney's office, I mean... What chance have you got?
0: And we hear here from all sides, right? We know that the black community is the target of sy- systemic racism and policing in Baltimore. We hear in this documentary that the Korean community feels marginalized and like their crimes are not mm-hmm. properly investigated. And now here we have the Muslim community coming out in force to you know rally around one of their own, a favorite son. Right. Same thing.
1: And why was An- Anand's dad not in court? In 2016.
0: Because in 2016 and in all of the other proceedings, he thought his beard and his looks would be held against his son.
1: Yeah. And where did he get that from? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And he's not wrong, apparently. No, no. He was right. And it wasn't just a feeling.
1: It was demonstrated for him at that bail hearing. It was gross.
0: It was gross. Meanwhile, Jay magically gets a a private attorney appointed for him by Kevin Newark, the prosecutor, Uh. uh, strikes a magic plea... And with time served, is able to walk away. We see the hearing. We see his sentencing. We hear him talk. And we see the only person with him in the courtroom is Stephanie. It was quite the contrasting tableau there. Right, Toby?
3: Yeah, it was kind of, it was grim.
0: You know, I thought that the crying remorse scene with
2: Jay in the courtroom where he's expressing remorse, I'm like, are you kidding me? Uh, like right now? Um, because you know that this isn't sincere, but then you look around and, you know, it's like we heard in the episode before this, that Jay's friends really don't want much to do with him or people that hung out with him. But Stephanie, I guess we haven't seen Stephanie yet, no. or we haven't heard like, where is present day Stephanie? So I'm, I would be curious to hear from her. It, the whole thing was so clearly orchestrated to benefit Kevin Urich's prosecution of Adnan, you know, right down to the private attorney, which again, was just absolutely ridiculous. But it's just one more thing that makes you enraged about how this whole case played out.
3: Well, I just, I, I mean, I kind of like, I don't exactly feel sorry for Jay, but it does kind of show that he didn't have the same kind of support system or close relationships or anything. It, it makes it more understandable that if he finds his back against the wall Because he's got this charge hanging over him. Like, he doesn't have people in his corner who are going to help him out or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's basically on his own to try and figure out what to do about things. I I know that Jay is not a particularly sympathetic character, but I did think that was sort of insightful about what his reality is when he's making decisions about what he's going to do sort of in response to different events that happen to him. It's basically just him figuring it out. That's right. There's no – he has no counsel.
0: Yeah. And actually, I agree with you. I, you know, I this might surprise people to hear. I find Jay to be a sympathetic character in a lot of ways. He, in my opinion, was used again and again and again and again by a likely corrupt prosecutor who would just wanted to win and manipulated a kid. You think about like Jay's circumstances and his life choices and the, the, the crimes he would go on to commit, you know, Nobody was reaching out to help him in offers of genuine help that were meant to make his life better. They were using fear to get him to behave the way they wanted him to behave. And if you think that what that's going to lead to is a productive and healthy member of society that you'd want to have in your life, like you're out of your mind. And this is he's not the only person like this in Baltimore. I'm sure there are thousands of now adults who were young people once who were used this way. And so I I do think he's a sympathetic character, even though, you know, clearly he has issues with the truth. Clearly he has issues with violence in his life and violence against women in particular. Um, I know what you're talking about, Toby, and I don't disagree with you. Uh, Laura, one final note before we talk about the cliffhanger that we saw at the end of the episode. You sent me a very complimentary note about Adnan's current attorney, Justin Brown. What were your thoughts on him? And we see him appear at the end of this episode. Oh, my God. I loved him. What a genuine
2: and good person. And when he said he might be 80 years old, still litigating this case, I'm like, Justin Brown, I'll help you. And then we see him with his family and his little kids. And when he's walking out, when um, you know we see the ruling in Adnan's favor and all the people outside. I love the guys outside the bar telling him to come in and celebrate and stuff. Uh, it's nice to see somebody that's doing their job for the right reason.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's a professional lawyer. I mean, he's certainly like been on the case for yeah. a long time. He's wonderful. Yeah. And he's lovely and uh, very handsome, too. I have met him in person as well. And I'm not afraid to call yeah. out the handsome men of this story, Justin Brown is definitely on that list, along with surprise handsome guy Abe W.,
2: yeah. cell phone expert.
0: Yeah. All right, yeah. well, at the very end of the episode, I just want your quick thoughts. We do see a little cliffhanger, someone writing an e- email asking for some DNA testing. Well,
1: that's that. That's part of where Serial actually left off. And we know, like they said, Kevin Urich said there's DNA, but no one ever tested it. Mm. I'm a little unclear, sort of like, where was this DNA Collected from, you know, did this come from the body? And if so, you know, I think they said there was no sign of sexual trauma. Right. No semen Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Again, they're setting up the promise for a lot of different things here. And hopefully in the final episode, this gets resolved in a way that is not only legally satisfactory, but narratively satisfactory.
0: It's definitely a question that's been hanging out there since Serial. Toby, you might remember episode seven of Serial, the Deidre Enright Innocence Project episode, DNA was sort of hinted at, other evidence that hadn't been tested was hinted at. And it's certainly been one of the biggest kind of question marks out there for me. So I was super excited to see this at the end. And, and you caught that too, right, Toby?
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll say it now instead of when we tie things up. But there's just a lot of like things in the air right now in this documentary. And I think unlike, say, the Ted Bundy documentary or like Murder Mountain, where you didn't have to watch the whole thing to make a judgment on the quality of it. Like you just knew after two or three episodes, you're like, it doesn't really matter how it ends as long as it kind of continues along this way, it's gonna be a B or an A. This one, I think, is in this weird situation where depending on how they resolve things in the final episode, it could either be brilliant or you could just end up being like, you know, you just kinda of threw all this stuff out there and what what do we get Play out off. of it?
0: Yeah. It's it's very efficient storytelling, though you have to admit there's a lot of stuff in three episodes. No, no,
3: I mean they do I mean it's obviously it's it's high quality. Unlike other again, unlike other stuff we've watched, they're making a crap load of promises about yeah. what they're gonna resolve. And in a lot of these things they kind of make a promise and then you don't you don't hear about it again. Hmm. Talk about Don. They got to talk about the car. They got to talk about DNA, and that—that's so at a list. minimum.
0: Yeah, big list. And
3: then uh, like finding the body. I mean, there's there's like all these things that they're going to have to cover. So maybe it's like an eight hour episode, or. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know.
0: It seems like a good time to transition. Then Toby, episode three: the case against a non on HBO. Do you want to just go ahead and give it a letter grade, given everything that you just said about what we may or may not see in episode four? Just this episode alone, grade it on a scale of A through F. Toby Baum putting you on the spot.
3: I'm just sick of giving B pluses all the time.
0: Mm.
3: I guess I'll give it an A minus in that I thought that there was some stuff in here that wasn't setting something up for later. Like I thought the interviews with uh, Jen and Christy and then sort of what we hear about what what Jay says over the phone those kind of resolved themselves which was good you know there was there was affecting stuff again it's sort of of a piece with all the other ones but maybe I thought this was slightly better so A minus
0: what about you Laura Brooker what grade do you give part three of the case against Adnan Zayed on HBO I'm going with A
2: Um, this is my favorite episode so far of this uh, series I liked seeing jen popper top along with uh kathy not kathy i liked seeing some of the scenes in the courtroom that we hadn't seen before um hearing you know we knew about the cell phone evidence but then hearing about that again it just it was a really good episode with a lot of interesting details but like toby i'm kind of like waiting for the payoff to see you know how they're going to wrap this up in episode four
0: Yeah. Well, I am also going to give it an A. I think this documentary continues to be super strong. I would love to, like, um, get the ear of somebody who, with no exposure to this case, had only listened to Serial Season 1 and then watched this. I'd love to talk to people to find out what they think, because this really, I think this episode in particular, picks up a lot of the threads that I think Sarah Koenig thought she closed in serial season one. She had this Kathy thing, Kathy, not Kathy thing. She had this, she had this. And this episode takes a lot of it apart in a way that is, I think, really strong and compelling. And it's also just, let's be real. This is what this stuff is actually for, whether or not we want to say it or not this series is so entertaining. It is so well done on so many levels. I'm really loving it. I'm going to give this one an A. What about you, Kevin? Yeah,
1: I'm an A minus. Again, I feel like it's building towards a a big ending. And I'm with Toby that as far as the narrative part of it, all this stuff needs to be resolved in one way or another. Um, You may not have an answer for Was the car moved, or what does that even mean? If it was, you can't leave them unanswered. Even if it's answered with a "who knows," you you know you have to kind of, in a satisfactory way, pull all these things together. Yeah, you know, like the Bundy thing. It's like it was sort of like one narrative track, and you're right. You've got a couple different ones, like a like a good book would. And so again, if you could pull them all together. That would be good. And, you know, I did hear from one person that I work with who watched episode one and was like, eh, this is serial all over again. Yeah. And maybe it was important to re restate that part of the case because you forget it, it really is an important part of the murder. It's not just high school gossip. And so now in these past two episodes, we have moved far beyond that and started to take a- apart the case in ways that
0: serial did not. <laughs> Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime Crime of of the Week. week. Los Angeles County deputies zoomed into the mountains last week after callers reported a violent kidnapping. Witnesses saw a man tied up with duct tape flee the trunk of a black BMW while two men with a handgun and shovel chased after him. (laughs) Law enforcement located the car and Fearing an exchange of gunfire employed high-risk traffic stop techniques. When they got everyone out of the car, they found it wasn't a kidnapping at all. The men were shooting a music video. The police response was strong because there had been a rash of murders and body dumps in that area. But not everything about the incident was fake. The actors were using a real loaded handgun as a prop... The deputies arrested one of the men on weapons charges and admonished the others for filming such a violent music video in public without first notifying the authorities.
1: And those Celine Dion videos are getting, like, really edgy. They
0: really are. Why
3: does the gun need to be loaded?
0: (laughs) Well, Uh,
1: the method actors, Toby. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Real Real fear. You you don't get the real
3: fear in your eyes if you're not actually (laughs) potentially
1: about to be murdered. I don't want to scare you, J Money, but this gun is actually loaded.
0: Now, panel, this Action. video certainly would have been action-packed, at least this scene anyway. What is another scene these very bright-sounding producers were planning to shoot for their music video? Laura Bricker, what do you think? There's got to be some sort of,
2: you know, something stunts with the car, with somebody on top of the car while they're, like, driving down the highway. I'm mean, Originally, I was thinking there's got to be a woman involved, but um, listening to these people, I-, I don't think any woman would affiliate with this. So it's like that video, do you see that video last week of the horse? riding in the back of the truck in Texas? I did. I (laughs) I mean, it's like, there's going to be something like that with these guys, like, on the roof of the car, driving down the street with the duct tape guy with, like, the gun at his head and... Uh, maybe up on two wheels. Maybe some fire. That's always good.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: Gets people's attention. Uh, so you know. Velcro yeah. somebody to the horse.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Tell me, Bo, what do you think? What would be the next logical scene that these uh, filmmaking geniuses were planning to shoot for this music video?
3: The next logical scene would clearly be limo with hot tub.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Probably with real Patron in their
1: uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> What about you, Kevin? What do you think the next scene these guys were planning to film was?
1: Uh, purple nerve with an actual bandsaw. <laughs> oh, God. There you go.
0: Ew. All right. Well, we should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <coughs> yeah, hold on just a second here. I got to pull
2: it up. Uh, this week, I have turned to members of the Brickter Scale True Crime Rage Walking and Fitness Fun Group on Facebook um, to get some nominations. And there was so many nominations that I don't even know how I can choose one of these animals because we have the Potbelly Pig In Uh. Angelica's backyard in New Jersey. Wow. Um, We have Katie's dog Shaggy who rage walked with her all week. Um, He was attacked by another dog and lost his right eye two years ago. He still occasionally bumps into stuff, but he manages pretty well. Um, We have Melissa's cockatoo Henry. Hmm. Um, She works for the MSPCA in mass as an animal trainer and she adopted him. The poor thing was like traumatized, plucking all his feathers out. So there are many great cats over there. Um, We have Pickles, the cat, Lauren's cat, who loves eating ham and potato chips. Wow. I don't know. I mean, I think there's something about Rage Walkers and animals. They've all got really interesting animals. It's, oh, we've got uh, Christina's dog, Kaiser, who actually winks. Wow.
0: Wow. Oh, and this has been docu- I so, mean it's like cornucopia. a lot of it's, it's menagerie a
1: menagerie of the a, week
0: it's an arc of the week, of the week. on yeah, Laura's yeah. segment well if you want to uh, reach out to Laura Bricker Laura if you folks want to reach out to you and uh, help you narrow down that list to choose I don't know just one cat or dog or animal of the week how can they find you on Twitter at Laura Bricker and Toby Ball if folks want to reach out to you and give you tips for how to be more of a morning person how can they find you on Twitter
3: Yeah, give me a break this week and send your uh, best recovery wishes to at Kevin P. Flynn
0: oh I Uh. agree with that Kevin if people want to reach out to you and send you those best recovery wishes, you want to reiterate your uh, Twitter handle for us? Yeah, I'm
3: at Kevin P.
1: Flynn, and thanks.
0: And if you want to follow this show on Twitter or Instagram, we're at Crime Writers On. You can also follow me on Twitter and Insta at RebLavoy. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media to get the crime writers on after show right now and all other kinds of bonus content including Toby Ball's deep dive book club podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This podcast was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio otherwise known as Studio C the closet in our New Hampshire basement where I keep all of your college class schedules so I can catch you in a gotcha moment about 20 years from now (laughs) on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later kevin said when i was recording my pre-roll he said i didn't sound sad enough he was like we need your voice (laughs) we need your voice to break more come
3: on now
2: oh my god
3: (laughs) you can do that you can do that in post-production
2: that's right
1: i'm gonna i'm gonna like make you do it again come on now
2: In crime crime media. Media.
1: to get the crime writers on after show right now go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media